Hello, my name is Paul Rouse and you are listening to Sport and Ireland, A History. In the spring and early summer of 2020, the playing of organised sporting competitions in Ireland and across most of the world was effectively suspended due to COVID. During those months, that is to say between March and June 2020, I recorded the weekly lectures of my long-running module, Sport and Ireland, A History, which I had taught in UCD for many years. The recordings were undertaken as a series of interviews with Joe Malloy, the award-winning presenter of Off the Ball on News Talk FM in Ireland, and were broadcast live on radio. The recordings are available here now, courtesy of Off the Ball, and I would like to thank Joe Malloy and Ger Gilroy for facilitating this series and for making it available on History Hub. History Hub is the UCD School of History's public history website. The site has hundreds of podcasts and posts covering everything from medieval to modern history, Irish and international. The site can be found at historyhub.ie. This episode of Sport and Ireland A History is episode 11, the final episode, in which we discuss sport during the Troubles and we also talk about the impact of television on Irish sport. Okay, you're welcome along to the latest in our History of Sports series. We have with us, as usual, Professor Paul Rouse, Professor at UCD's School of History. We are into, Paul, I think our final lecture in this broad series, which has taken us from medieval times right through to modern day sport in this country. So we're coming to the end. We're coming to the end and we're coming to a 50 year span from 1970 until, until now. Um, nobody will be happy with this lecture insofar as anybody was happy with anything we've done so far. Nobody will be happy with the choices that are made here. Nobody will be happy with the privileging of certain pieces of history above uh, others. Everybody will have their view on what should be spoken about and of the judgments that I hold. And that's exactly how history should be. History should be a debate over what matters more than anything else. It should be a debate rooted in evidence. And I suppose it's particularly the way debate goes now in the modern world. I'm, um, I'm not open for, uh, I'm not open for insults, but I'm open for, uh, I'm open for complete and utter disagreement. Okay, so give me an example of what you mean then. What might somebody say at the end of this that, that, that a complaint they may have of a choice that you've made? Okay, so we can't obviously tell, and it comes down to what history is. History is not the past, or it's not what everything that has happened. It is the story we tell ourselves of what matters within the past to us in our interpretation to best explain it. Now, obviously, it would be hard. You couldn't even tell the story, despite the lack of sport that's being played this year. You could not tell the story in 40 minutes, even of the sporting world, of this calendar year alone. So you obviously have to leave out whole swathes of, of history in what we do. So we will barely mention Stephen Roach and, and cycling. We, and, and winning the two or the three things in the same year. We will barely mention Italia 90. And so on. So in, in individual sporting events will not get the type of attention that people, people think that it should get. What I'm going to try and do instead is to frame up the various themes of modern sport that matter. And then people can see how that fits into their own particular sporting interest. And there will be whole sports not mentioned at all. Like we haven't mentioned, for example, badminton at all in this across the last... Oh, I know. Like, the, pho- the, phone, the phone lines have been hopping. <laughs> no, Joe, don't, don't, don't take that tone. We haven't mentioned uh, squash. We haven't mentioned snooker or billiards, really, hardly at all. So these are sports that really matter to the people who, who are involved in them. 
But what we're trying to do instead of giving a roll call of every sport or telling the history of every sport is tell the themes and trends into which our sporting experience fits. Okay, understood. So it's on that premise that will embark on this then. So sport since 1970. This is not just recency bias or me wanting to centre myself at some particularly interesting time. I am right in saying that we are living through extraordinary times. I don't mean the pandemic. I mean the internet. Oh, like this is the story, first of all, of the last 50 years when it comes to sport is the story of extraordinary change. And it is extraordinary change rooted in huge societal change. And if you look in the context of Ireland, I'll come to the internet in a second, but if you look at the context of Ireland, look at the scale of social and economic change. In 1970, there could rightly be said that Ireland was still largely an economic, uh, a country dependent on the agrarian world, on farming and on spin-off industries. It is now entirely given uh, in large measure to high-tech industries and to pharmaceutical industries. In 1970, Ireland wasn't part of the European economic community and it is now part not just of, of an EEC but of uh, the European Union with, the, with all that that means in terms of, of, of sovereignty and how policy is made. Look at the decline of the Catholic Church. You look at the manner in which people attended Mass in 1970, um, numbers way above uh, 80-90% and now it's, it's collapsed particularly in urban areas. You look at the sexual revolution in which the number of people who now don't get married or, or move between partners and so on is, is entirely different. You look at the fact that in 1970, we're just in the ground slopes of a kind of a nasty low-grade war in, in Northern Ireland and look at the cycle that's moved on from that. And then, as well, crucially in terms of sport, look at migration. Look at the number of people who have moved from this island and to this island and how that has changed sport. In, in the last number of years. So sport fits within that broader social uh, and economic change. And there are a couple of key aspects here that we'll talk about. First of all, disposable income. Notwithstanding the problems that are in, that are in the country, notwithstanding the people who are really suffering, notwithstanding the fact that there is a huge discrepancy between people who have a lot of money and people who have none, it is an undeniable fact that Ireland is a significantly wealthier country um, than it was in, in 1970 in terms of riches and that has colored sporting choice number one and number two this brings us to your point about the internet the change in the in technology and in communications since 1970 is extraordinary Mm. so many houses in ireland just had a black and white telly with with uh, just a, a channel or maybe two channels in in 1970 and now People, many people essentially have what amounts to a television in their pocket as they walk around. And that is a change which we are only in the ground slopes of understanding how our world, including our sporting world, is being changed and is about to be further changed by the growth of internet, internet technologies, um, in particular the ubiquity of the smartphone, but also the impact of artificial intelligence. Yes. My brain can't keep pace with it all. You know, I hope when the Paul Rouse of 2200 is having this series when the next pandemic hits, I hope that somewhere in his presentation to the masses then, if radio is still around, that he is making the point that even people in the midst of it felt that their heads were fried and they couldn't figure this thing out. It It is one of the great mistakes that people make 
when they write history or they seek to understand history, that they look at what is, they look at the outcome and they almost consider that outcome inevitable and they, cease, they seek to trace the route to the outcome without understanding that at every step along the way, none of this was in, in, inevitable, or at least almost none of it was, was inevitable. That it is the product of decisions that people made in various ways, both in, on an individual and on a collective basis. Like there was nothing inevitable about Brexit. Brexit was a choice made by a group of people who were fed certain parts of information and, and chose to, to believe it. There was nothing inevitable about the election of Donald Trump. And there is nothing inevitable about his prospective defeat for a second term in November. It does look increasingly likely, but to argue that it's inevitable would be entirely wrong. Equally, there is nothing inevitable. We don't know now what would happen with the pandemic we, we, that, that we record this in the middle of it. We don't, we, don't, we don't know that. We don't know where things are going or that there isn't another wave of another virus about to throw upheaval in, in our world. And in terms of the use of technologies and how technology changes our lives and how we regulate technology, how we deal with um, how we deal with high tech companies and how we deal with people who are publishers of of social media and that debate over whether they should be understood as a public utility more than anything else it's not clear on this and in terms of sport we might talk about this I'm happy to talk about this now if you want to but in terms of the future of sport we don't really know what the future of sport is so for example if you understand through this course that the, the, the 19th century, because of the scale, extent and power and wealth of the British Empire, it can rightly be said that it was during that 19th century that British sports spread around the world and transformed how, not just how people in Britain played, but how people in Ireland played and people in countries all around the world played because mm. of the power of that. Similarly, if we consider the, sec, the 20th century and certainly the second half of the 20th century as being dominated by American power and the American empire. You can understand the impact that that had on the Irish sporting experience in two ways. You understand it, for example, in the spread of sports such as basketball and the rise of basketball as the second most popular sport in the world and everything that that means um, and how that pushed in everywhere, but also the spread of American technologies, the growth of pay TV, the growth of the televised you know, sport and the growth of American commercial practices in the sale of sports and in their presentation. So that transformed our sporting world in the 20th century. So we've gone from the British century to the American century. And we now look like we're coming in to a century or we're in the, the early stages of a century, which will possibly be dominated by China, maybe by India to some extent, but certainly by heading towards Eastern countries. And the question is right, is right to ask, how will that affect our sporting practices? Will it just mean new ways of understanding the thing? Will it just mean that these people, these countries will be new powers in existing sports? Or will they, in what way will they change our sporting practices? We'll finish up with that question. I'll allow that to stew around in the listeners' minds for a few moments. Let's jump in then, 1960s, RTE television. I mean, if ever there's a revolution from a sporting perspective, it's that suddenly you can go from 50, 60,000 people watching an All-Ireland final to effectively the whole country. And that must happen in the space of a year. I mean, we're talking about the rate of change we're all undergoing at the moment. From a television perspective, for that many people to suddenly see the game is an extraordinary change overnight. It is an extraordinary change now. It is true that people could watch recorded highlights through Gaelin films that were shown in cinemas around the country, not having been at games through the 40s and the 50s and into the 60s. But the fact is that from the first year of 
the establishment of Telefish Air, as RT was initially named, that that the broad you could see now these players on matches in All Ireland semi-finals and and in finals, and the broadcast of those games lent a luster to them, and they pushed a new sort of fame onto the games and onto the spread of the games and onto the people who 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 played them, and it created a huge change, and it was a signal change in. In, in Irish life because you also then got uh, in terms of all Ireland finals that's fine but also you get the transmission of international soccer matches of the FAI Cup final and of international rugby matches yeah. so people GEA people who had never been to rugby or soccer matches now saw these sports that they had read and heard about and of course had an interest in in great, in great numbers and you, you said last week it's worth reiterating for people who didn't hear for instance, that made a mockery of the ban, the GEA's ban. I mean, if you're banning people for going to foreign games, but they're sitting at home watching them on their couch anyway, then there's a, a fatal flaw in that ban. How quickly, by the way, were these games live? I mean, the all well, from, from, of, from of the of first year, 1962. So they I'm were really live, were they? Wow. Yeah, our television sharing, they, they go live from, from, from 62. And it is one of those things that, that um, I, I completely understand that people love to kick RTE and I, I understand that that's how people, people trust. It's a national broadcaster, it's a target. But the reality of it was that first in radio and then in television, RTE's technology came in straight away and, and it, was, it, was a, it was a really important relationship with sport mm. throughout all of these things. And it is, it is true. You, you go to the FAI Cup final in Daily Mount and you're banned from, from the, playing inter-county football for Kildare uh, I sit at home and watch it on telly and I can play away, no problems. Um, and, and this creates a situation where the GA had to get rid of, rid of its ban rules. But it did another thing as well. There are people who, obviously from rugby backgrounds, no interest in, in GA previously, or soccer backgrounds, never, now we're in no interest in GA. And now they too can sit at home and, and watch these games. But something else happens very quickly as well. And it happens through Sports Stadium, that mm. program that, that, people of my vintage will remember particularly well that runs through from the late 70s and through the 80s and it is that, that collection of sports that were broadcast on Saturdays with people like Brendan O'Reilly presenting them and you get a collection of sports from horse racing but also squash and, and basketball and first exposure to quality basketball was on those programs and the growth of the Irish league in the 1980s was massive these kind of brilliant American players not quite good enough to make the NBA, but yeah. still extraordinarily brilliant. And they add this luster to a game which in newly built community halls and in, in towns all across Ireland is taking hold from Tralee to Mayo and so on. Uh, there are basketball teams that are, that are just really embedded in the community. Yes. And the league is superb and it's shown on television. And that's, that was really important as well. And sorry, so I'm going to jump around here because I'm, I'm, I feel like I have a certain degree of uh, lived experience of all this. Two things jump out at me about the importance of all of this. From a TV perspective, and I know this from working on the show as a, as a lived experience now, we will get questions on a Monday. Why are you not covering X? And the short answer is, if something was on television over the weekend and thousands of our listeners have seen it, they will have their own opinions on it. They will enjoy the conversation about it in a far deeper way, as opposed to if that GAA match, which was not on television, you read the match report, you have no opinion on it. You didn't see the controversial incident. You have no opinion yeah. on who the man of the match was. So suddenly a match being on TV 
transforms the industry from Monday to Friday as well, because there is now a desire to debate and talk, and, and that's huge. And the other point, just to make briefly, I think my generation is one of the last generations, I've noticed this with younger guys coming through even and talking to them, that grew up where they were fed multi-sports just via like a BBC or an RTE, i.e. in summertime I played tennis because Wimbledon was on. Yeah. Well, I went and played pitch and puck because the golf was on. Whereas now, if you're just like a Conor McGregor fan or a Messi fan, you have 24-7 coverage of Conor McGregor or Messi to sustain you. You don't need to rely on what the BBC is going to feed you on a Saturday because you mightn't be that interested in equestrian uh, sports. So you don't have to wait around for it. So it's a bit like a, a increasingly some kind of echo chamber where if you're a Republican, you can just follow all the Republican accounts and just get all that, all, all that you want. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's amazing how even the media has changed uh, tastes, I suspect, going forward. No, no doubt about that. Absolutely no doubt about this omnibus sports program on Saturday afternoons on, on BBC and on RTE gave people exposure to things that they would not ordinarily have played. The fact then that when sporting dedicated sporting coverage of major events, and if we think about it here, we think about it, the Irish and British Open in terms of golf, we think about it in, in, in terms of, um, say, uh, the horse show. I suppose you were probably one of those kids who built the, the fences in the back garden for, for doing show jumping over just pretending you had a horse under you when you were running around. I suppose... As well, you picked up people picked up tennis rackets during Wimbledon. 100%. But, yeah. but you, and you can see how, how golfers understood this. If you may remember that when, when the British Open was given to Sky or, or, or bought by Sky from the BBC and BBC lost the rights to it, that people like Rory McIlroy and others spoke out about it because they understood that what this did was it took it out of the living rooms of very many people yeah. whose first dabble in golf was promoted by, by having it prompted by seeing people play it. There's not a single golfer you will talk to now uh, from the age of 30 upwards who, if you ask them why they got into the sport, they will either mention watching the Masters late at night with their parents or sitting in front of the Open on BBC. So that's now gone. There's now no major golf on terrestrial TV. The BBC don't even have highlights anymore. It's gone. It doesn't exist. And, and, and this, is, this is really important. And it's really important in, in, a, in, a, in a whole load of different ways. Uh, and people, people have to, this is again the idea that this is, there was nothing inevitable about this. This is the product of choices made by sporting organization. So you have to look at the upside of it as well. So the upside of it is, there is, for those people who can afford it and who are already interested in it, or whose families are already interested in a particular sport, they can watch almost unlimited coverage of most sports if they've got the money for it at the moment, because they can get access to the particular channels that they could see, number one. Number two, there is a range of expert opinion in certain sports where you can learn from their expertise when they, when they comment on those sports because they give, they're given so much time on golf and so on that they can do interesting things and they have so much airtime to fill on these channels. So that's, that's uh, good. And there have been technical innovations in the coverage of sports that have been driven by pay TV companies in the, in the beginning at least which have transformed how people have been able to watch and engage with sports. So it's not just a simple tale of, oh, it's terrible, these sports have gone on pay TV. Mm. And finally, what it has done is it has created an inflow of money into a huge range of sporting organizations um, because of the rights that people are now charged to watch TV. TV companies uh, can, can then pay the sport a much greater sum of money than, than ordinary free-to-air TV 
companies can pay. So they're the positives for the sporting world. Sure. The negatives for the sporting world are that um, what you do with the money is really, really important once it comes in because once you sell yourself to a pay TV company, you sell a certain amount of your sovereignty over your sport and access to your sport and how your sport is run, the times it's played at. And the minute you become dependent on that money, you are in a lot of butter. And you can see the pressure that the Premier League in England came under when it became clear that they were about to lose Sky money because they were not finishing up the season and who knows when they would start the next one and so on through the NBA in America, the demand of American football start up immediately. So there is a cost to getting that money. It's not free money, number one. Number two, you change your viewership. The minute you go on to pay TV, you change your viewership. And like, I, I, I'm going to really try not to speak about the GAA on this because obviously I have a very, very particular view on the idea that an amateur uh, so-called community-based organization. Well, it is a community-based organization, but but um, but there's a huge tension between that and the sale of games to pay TV companies, notably the fact that it was done in the middle of a brutal recession. So that that matters. But for professional sports, what it does immediately is it changes access to the people who watch your games. And it is fundamental to the shifting demographics in the class. Like, look at the people now who go and watch, for example, Arsenal in London compared to who used to go there in, in, in the 80s and so on across uh, the, the, the sporting world that changed the nature of soccer from the 90s. Now, some of those changes are far the better. Stadia are better, pitches are better, players are, there's more players, more interesting players. But there is a cost to that too. Let's uh, dial back around for a second then. So you mentioned it at the beginning of the chat. Uh, we were in the midst of the Troubles during this period. So uh, what effect did all of that have? What did those decades have on sport on this island? Well, in certain instances, it meant death to be associated with a sporting organization meant that for some people you were a target. So for example, for GA men such as Sean Brown or Jerry Devlin, they were murdered because of their association with the GA and with Northern clubs uh, within the GA. For people like Aidan McInespy, who in 1988 was crossing the border to, the border to go to a field shot by a British soldier. That also meant uh, death. So there were people who were targeted for, for membership of the association. And you can see that the Ulster Freedom Fighters, for example, uh, placed the GAA on a list of what it called legitimate targets because they were seen to be so enthralled to, to, um, to the ideas of, of republicanism and, and everything uh, to do with this. So that's the first thing to be said that at its most basic it meant that but there are other things that mattered as well there were arson attacks on on various GEA clubhouses all across um, uh, the six counties during these years so for example you get um, clubs such as the one in uh, Ballycrana uh, St. Joseph's which when it was burnt down in 1993 was the seventh time its clubhouse had been built down in in 20 years and that also matters of course arson attacks work both ways there were also the Republicans who burnt down cricket grounds because of their association with, with our parents or claimed association with British sports and with people who, who played in them. But the violence came to clubs as well, people who weren't targeted. So you get men um, such as Henry Livingston, who was uh, a former soldier in the Ulster Defence Regiment and a farmer in County Armagh who was, who was killed. Um, and he was a rugby player in, in the Armagh club. So his death obviously feeds into that club, even if 
he's not shot because he's a member of that club, it still changes the atmosphere in in that club. And then when you have Kevin Lynch, uh, the INLA man who died on hunger strike in 1981, brilliant hurler in in Derry, uh, he died on he died as one of the ten hunger strikers who who died, and the club is called after him. So that's an identification. So the club he played hurling for is called after it's called Kevin Lynch's now, and and so that identifies that sport is closer with that organization. So you get sport becoming a, 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 or becoming once again a badge of honor. You get the change in the use of um, facilities. And this is, this is really interesting. Like Cross McLean, well, first of all, Caseman Park was British soldiers in 72, cut down the goalposts and stuff like that. Cross McLean, they took the pitch for a long section of the pitch for use for uh, British army-based chalk cop helicopters fly, flying in and out and all that that means. But it was really interesting. The GA on the one hand suffered because of that and all the while between 1962 and 1982, the GA received just short of a million pounds in support from the British Exchequer. So it's, it's, a, really, it's a really interesting thing. So we'll, uh, I, I throw it out there as, as, a thing that, as a thing that people need to think about as well. It's not just uh, a one-way street. And if you look at the individual sports, there is no denying the fact that the GEA was identified almost exclusively with with nationalists and people who who were who were perceived to be nationalists. And I know that someone would point to individual exceptions to that story, but the exceptions almost proved the rule in in terms of the scale of it. And then on the other hand, um, sports such as cricket, hockey, and rugby were largely identified, though not exclusively, with with the with the unionist community. And then. In the middle, you had soccer. Okay, well, what, soccer, what about soccer? Soccer's really interesting, really interesting during this period. So you had Derry, Derry City, who, a profoundly nationalist club, who end up getting dispensation to move and play south of the border. And you have clubs such as Belfast Celtic, which basically end up not being able to play anymore. But you have other Catholic clubs, who are, and you can tell from the club that someone is involved in, essentially, what they're... What, what, what their religion is and the great moment in all of this stunning moment in it is 1982 when Northern Ireland progressed in the World Cup beating Spain in the way and the man the captain of the team that day is Martin O'Neill originally Gaelic footballer from Derry and Belfast and Jerry Armstrong who also played GAA so you, who scored the winning goal against Spain so you see that um, you see these things happen soccer is more of a space where where there is conflict because although the goal is scored, the king is captained by Martin O'Neill and the goal is scored by Jerry Armstrong, the terraces in 82, the chanting is, is loyalist chanting. And yeah. there's a lot of red, white and blue on the terrace as well as, as well as green. So it's a, it's again, it's a complex shifting scenario when it came to soccer. Yeah. It's not much better in 93 in that world cup playoff. Oh, cruel, cruel. The atmosphere that day in the first, it's sometimes forgotten what happened the first, the first um, match between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland in that qualifying campaign when the Republic of Ireland won 3-0 in what was really a stroll in Lansdowne Road and the crowd chanted there's only one team in Ireland. And that really got up the back of, of, uh, of Billy Bingham, the Northern Ireland manager at the thing, but also the supporters of the team and, and I don't doubt the players as well. I mean, it's, it's a fairly... It's a fairly galling chant. It's pretty to, funny. It's pretty pretty funny as well. It is. It is. I mean, you can understand why you sing it. Because if, they're, you're, if, they're you're three, if they're three nil up, you're allowed to sing it. 
Well, you're allowed to sing it, but there's always when you when, when you taunt your opponent, there is always no. It's loaded. Look, it's, there's, there's, it's loaded. No, there's, there's no, no doubt. There's no doubt. It's very loaded as well. Yes, and and on a sporting sense alone, though, the minute you engage in a taunt like that before a second match is being played, you're open. And but the peculiar context of '93, what is is the game in Winter Park where the Republic Northern Ireland were out uh, of the qualifying campaign. Republic of Ireland essentially needed a draw to go through um, results elsewhere being okay. Mm. And what happened was, was just an extraordinary atmosphere of bile and, and hatred and no real, a couple of Republic of Ireland fans got in, but not really. Um, and everybody who was involved in that game that day talks about the atmosphere in the ground and the manner in which it was whipped up. And uh, Ireland, Republic of Ireland obviously eventually got the late goal, which allowed them to progress but the context of that match was really interesting mm. and appalling and the context of that match is the fact that the Ulster Freedom Fighters the UFF had killed eight people in the Rising Sun Bar attack in Greysteel and uh, the IRA had killed ten people in a bomb in a fish shop on the Shankill Road so that is the context of death that, that comes yeah. around this and it added more to the whole more to the whole story Talk to us then. That, that's, by the way, fascinating about the British exchequer giving a million pounds towards GEA. Uh, talk to us maybe more so in the Republic for a moment about how the Irish governments during this period that we're talking about, 1970 through to something approaching today, how has the Irish government or, or indeed maybe even the European Union um, engaged with sport? Well, it works on different levels and you have to separate the two levels, even though they're both interlocked. It, and on the one hand, it's about sport for all. And on the other hand, it's about support for elite sport. And if we take, first of all, sport for all, the sport for all movement in, in Ireland was essentially driven by changes in the European economic community in the 60s, even before Ireland was a member, it began to become aware, and you can see this in government files, of what was happening in Europe and in an attempt to get people to become more physically active. And it gathered momentum through the 70s after Ireland joined and it pushed the Irish government, who, who through successive Irish governments, had followed the lead of the British government and not really investing hugely in sport for the first for most of the, the early decades of the 20th century. Um, but it moved so much that you get the establishment of the Sports Council, the Irish Sports Council in 1999, mm. uh, which became Sport Ireland uh, subsequently. Um, but that has its origins in an in a, in a, in a, in a, in a intergovernmental driven a committee that was established called CUSPOR in 1978. And their idea was that they would drive sport for all initiatives around the countryside, that they would develop facilities and that they would develop methods of play for those people who weren't necessarily getting them at that stage. And this ultimately came under the auspices of the newly created Department of Arts, Sport and Tourism, first of all in 1997, and then changed his name to Transport, Tourism and Sport yeah. in, um, in, in 2011. So I, I couldn't believe that was so late, actually. 1997, I just would have thought there would have been a Department of Sport in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And if you look at it, if you look at it, if you, again, if you raise these two things, why is this? In, first of all, if you look at Sport for All, as, take the curriculum. There was no proper PE curriculum when it comes to the physical education that kids were involved in 
throughout their schooling experience. And the great majority of kids before the 1960s went only to primary school. They didn't really go to secondary school at all. And practically nobody went to university. But across primary schools, there was no real engagement with organized sport in a systematic way. It depended on the whim of a local teacher being interested in it and being both interested in it in the sport and interesting to give sport to the kids. And you can see... Or up until when, Paul? Up until when was well, that? Well, well look, at, look what happened in the 1930s. So in the 1930s, the government understood that there was a problem with kids engaging in sport and they set up a couple of governmental committees which referred, by the way, to the fact of, and I quote, evil consequences of the lack of sport being undertaken. And they went to places like Nazi Germany and they went to Sweden they went to other areas to look at what people were doing in a sporting sense to try and learn from them and bring them in um, to bring in a kind of teacher training programs and the reality of it is the the what is now UL but was first of all the National College of Physical Education opened in 1973 with the first teachers of physical education coming out a couple of years later now I know some teachers had gone to train in Strawberry Hill in London before then but that's broadly it it's 19. 19- 73 before you get the push for the, this all and that again is part of that whole sport for all um initiative and all the while you have that going on and at the same time you have very little funding also for elite sport so if you look at elite sport the irish team that went to the amsterdam olympics in 1928 where pat o'callaghan won a gold medal yeah. was funded to the tune of 1000 irish pounds that's the state funding for it. Uh, as late as 1968, the team that meant Mexico was funded to the tune of £12,000. So the Olympics being considered, mm. for all its wrongs, considered that thing that most sporting people wish to get to at that point. That's the level of funding for them. Right. And when does the major upswing happen? It really happens. Um, it begins to happen in the 70s and the 80s, but after the 1990s, it's really interesting to watch how sport is funded. So as late as 2013, so Irish athletes are getting funded on a carding scheme mm. to the tune of about 800,000. That's athletics alone, but there's also great success through funding for boxers and for, for rowers, as, 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 as people are aware. So it becomes more, but it, it, it took a while to shift away from that. The 1920s, Department of Finance asked a brilliant question. We may not like to, to, we may find it easy to answer the question, but it was a brilliant question. They asked simply when they were asked for funding for sporting organizations, what does the taxpayer get back for funding elite sports people? And, and it is a question that remains extremely important to answer. Like why, why do we fund top level athletes to go and compete around the world? Mm. What is it about it? that makes us wish to do that. What is it about England that puts so much money into attempting to win gold medals at Olympic Games, both in 2012 and subsequently in 2016, and the range of sports that were funded? And this desire, is it, is it for national morale? Is it to fly the flag on an international stage? What exactly is the reason we do it? Or is it just something that's inherently good in itself? And does it, is it because it attracts people to join that sport? Mm. Well, if you want to attract people to join the sport, you have to have a sporting infrastructure. And in terms of how we have built our sporting infrastructure, it really is extraordinary what happened uh, through the sports capital funding grants and the money that came through the National Lottery. And it is worth bearing in mind, again, that between 2002 and 2011, the state spent more than 2 billion 
euros on sport. Now, that doesn't include the 114 million for Croke Park, and it doesn't include any funding that came through the Department of Education. What it includes, though, is the Department of Art, Sport and Tourism giving money. And the surveys show from the time that if you were the minister who was in charge of that department, Minister for Sport, or if you were the Minister for Finance, your constituency did disproportionately well. I'll be very careful how I put this. Uh, disproportionately well in the allocation of funding. So you see, for example, when Jim McDade was Minister for Sport, Letter Kenny received more than a million uh, euros in funding during those years. Uh, there was an enormous sum given to uh, Letterkenny UDC and then St. Eunan's Club in Letterkenny received enormous funding. Now, I'm not saying that they don't deserve it. I'm not saying at all that they didn't deserve it. I'm just saying the basic facts are that when, when Jim McDade was minister for, uh, for, for sport, that his constituency received an extraordinarily high proportion proportion of funding relative to other things and exactly the same thing happened with Jonathan who when he came. and this this work by the way has been brilliantly documented by John Considine yeah. who people might remember as a man who 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 heard with Cork and he's a professor of economics in in UCC and he finishes this a superb report with a line superbly where it just says the money follows the ministers yeah if I'm not mistaken I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this because I'm working off memory which is a dangerous thing to do in this game but mm. I have a pretty vivid memory of John O'Donoghue noting the irony that when he lost yeah, yeah. whatever election he, he lost, he noted that the Ken Centre was in the very sports hall that he had brought to Kerry. I'm, that happened, didn't it? It did. I think he, I think he was, he was uh, somewhat shocked that, people, shocked that the people should not have been more grateful for him and that yeah. in this context of where he was live on, live on television subsequently, that, yes. that this was not acknowledged in the ballot box. But I mean, I, I mean, it's not surprising. It's symptomatic of our parish pump political system. And of course, if you're the minister for sport, listen, like, I mean, you, you mentioned that about Jim McDade and Letterkenny as if this was maybe a bad thing. I mean, if you're Jim McDade, I mean, you can't say this loudly enough. Damn right I did. You know, that's the whole point of the game. And if you're the people who benefited from in St. Ah. Eunice, I don't begrudge them a penny of it. I'm just pointing out that this is how policy, this sure. is how policy is made. And... Um, and they, you see they, do, it. they do argue it's changed now. It's, it's, I mean, that it's open to the most rigorous uh, checks and balances and that they've got to grips with this, which, which in and of itself is an, an acknowledgement that there was a problem. It is. It is. And it, what, what brought the problem once more is where you saw the funding of certain schools in, in South Dublin with uh, the provision of 4G hockey pitches at a time when there were so many other schools for example, 10 inner city schools in the north side of, on, in the south inner city of Dublin would not have laid a grass between them. So you get a disparity. And what there has been in the, in the kind of pork barrel of personal favours that have been dished out by a succession of politicians, what there has not been is a constructive, coherent plan around the provision of widespread sporting facilities for people around the country. And in general, by the way, there is, there is this idea that this, this failure to construct municipal sports stadia yes. and the idea that there can be shared stadia and really when it comes down to it in a small island the, the mania for building a stadia which stay, stay unused for so long is, is, is exceptional yeah okay so if we were to um, we're drawing a, drawing a line in our series here and as we because I want to move on to some other aspects uh, of, of sport in this period but if we were to draw a line in 2020 you would say in terms of a sporting infrastructure around the country, 
we're still, it's very haphazard, it's ad hoc. It's nothing really for us to turn around and say, we've cracked it. You know, on this small island where it should be very doable, we don't have wonderful collections of municipal stadiums and an infrastructure for various sports to thrive. We haven't, we haven't cracked that one. Oh, our, our sporting infrastructure has to be looked at in the context of individual sporting organisations. So you can see, for example, the network of GAA clubs and of rugby clubs and to a lesser extent of soccer clubs around the country who do have lovely fields at club level on which to play for. What yeah. we do not have is, is, is a coherent strategy of providing enough playing fields in areas where we need them. That's for, on a sport for all basis. So, for example, there's a huge deficit in the south inner city and in the north inner city of Dublin alone. And you can go to urban areas all around the country and you find that. That's there. There is not an adequate level of indoor playing facilities on a place that's very wet all, all winter. The, the, the provision of gyms, for example, for basketball or other like sports is entirely privatized now. And it's, again, that brings its own issues. But then at an elite sport level, yeah. we have, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's chronically misorganized in terms of how we, we do things. Now, that's partly to do with the GA's county system and the desire for every county to have a, uh, it, a kind of a, if you build it, they will come type scenario yeah. in operation in, in their place. And I totally get that. But often these have been built out of entire proportion to the demands and needs of, of their area. So we'll build a 20,000 seat when really, do we really need more than 10? Have yeah. we ever had more than 10,000 people here? Yeah. So um, to change gear then, the series you did, the lecture you did on uh, women and their participation in sport late 19th century through to early 20th century got a great reaction. Uh, this 50-year period, we're, we're, we're in the midst of another revolution at the moment. So, so chart 1970 to where we are for women and sport. It's, it's really interesting what has happened in terms of, of the participation of women in sport in Ireland since 1970. It has been a story of slow, exceptionally hard-won gains in participation and in acknowledgement that women have a place in the Irish sporting world that should move from the margins to the mainstream. It is something that is a work in progress and can only be considered a work in progress. But if we look at that work in progress, you look at, for example, the Ladies Gaelic Football Association, founded in 1974, allowing women to play football in Croke Park only uh, a mere five years after men had walked on the moon. So it is, it is a steady change from that. The establishment of that association in uh, 1974, driven by Brendan Martin, to the fact that by 2008 alone, there were 132,000 women and girls playing Gaelic football um, in that year. And that number has grown since. In the 1970s as well, you get a ladies' football association um, and you get the fact since that with 10 years ago, there were about 6,500 um, registered players. So this has grown up. And then in 1993, you had the beginnings of women's club rugby in a very slight basis in the 1970s, a little bit around Trinity, a bit down in Brough and Limerick and so on. But 1993, the international women's team, the early 90s international women's team gets going but grows so much that by 2013 it wins a Grand Slam and then made the semi-final of the World Cup in 2014. And you look at the performances of inter-county ladies Gaelic football teams, you look at the performances of the Irish international soccer team and you look at the performances of the rugby team and this is the story of, of sporting progress that is unrelenting in, 
in these years, both in the ter- numbers of, of people who are playing in the profile of those sports. But it is unrelenting coming from an exceptionally low basis of interest. And the challenge will be to continue that as it gets more and more difficult to do it. And what has helped in the spread of certain sports and in changing people's perception of what women are entitled to do are, are, are also not just field games icons, but also people such as Sonia O'Sullivan, whose performances through the 90s and into the 2000s enthralled people. I mean, it was, it was a national soap opera from like the lost gold of Atlanta in 1996 to silver in Sydney in 2000. And even before that, back in Barcelona, that fourth place being tipped and, you know, the questions about some of the people who beat her in races. So um, there's Sonia and then more recently, Katie Taylor. And I think nothing could be more evocative on the change in perceptions of what women are able to do in a sporting sense than the fact that one of the most admired sports people in the country and arguably, I think, well, undoubtedly the most famous Irish sportswoman in the country is a boxer who has also, by the way, played Gaelic football in Camogie, but played international soccer 20-odd times and was just a tremendous all-round athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about sport as an industry in this country then? If we were talking... I mean, if you take the UK and our closest neighbours, uh, the amounts of money being earned on mm. English soil have grown exponentially. Largely, I'm talking Premier League, of course, but exponentially. I'm trying to think here, who is earning a huge living from sport on Irish soil? I mean, I know Podrick Harrington lives here. He doesn't earn his money here. Our soccer players go. Maybe our, maybe our jockeys or our, our, our trainers. Like, I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion, is it, are our rugby players our highest paid athletes earning their money here sport is an industry i think there are a sprinkling of people involved in horse racing who have managed to make themselves um very wealthy through their involvement in in sport um irish bookmakers have done very well out of sport and continue to do very well uh, out of sport in the absence of proper regulation I think uh, Rory Croke, by the way, had a brilliant article in the Irish Times about that uh, early, earlier, uh, early, earlier this week. Um, I think people have made money from administration um, out of sport. There are, you know, people have done very well from running certain organisations. Um, and I, think right, I, did, I didn't know what you meant there. So, OK, John Delaney, one of the better paid CEOs in the world, probably. Well, exceptionally. In, 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 in soccer terms, I mean, he's paid more than the Spanish. Oh, exceptionally well paid. Yeah. No, exceptionally well paid. And, yeah. and, but but, but, but um, not alone in that. And um, on top of that, after that, you have to look at the rugby players and what a high level rugby player gets paid in Ireland. And again, it is, it's not as much as they would get if they went to France. But what there is, is a scheme for Irish rugby players who play their, play their careers here and the manner in which that kind of um, the tax deduction scheme yeah. works for gross earnings. So for those people who, for people who don't know this, um, a, a, an Irish sports person who's a professional gets a 40% tax deduction on their gross earnings from sports activity over a 10-year period uh, once they retire. And that between 2002 and 2014, 271 sports professionals shared about 1.8 million in tax rebate. So it's not an extraordinary amount of money, but it does make a difference 
to people who were there and I suspect that that number can 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 grow in 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 the event of the scheme um the scheme surviving so but it is it is it is rugby which is the broad base because if you look at soccer the the market for soccer means that the very best players go abroad and the league is sundered in two parts here north and south there is a want of investment or there was traditionally a want of investment in the league there was a want of prioritization a key domains in that league by the Football Association of Ireland there was the decision of clubs to pay uh, sums of money to their players who played for them uh, on a basis at a time when they didn't have significant income to justify that and um, there's just a kind of a chaotic financial structure to the whole operation which does not permit of long-term professional development yeah yeah, it's also been a period where you know certain sports seem to have done disproportionately well, like the greyhound industry, classed as you yeah. know, come, comes under the auspices of the Department of Agriculture and therefore receives huge sums. The horse racing industry is very much an industry and is is hugely supported by government. All of that has happened in this period as well. It's really interesting to watch that. It's really interesting to watch how greyhound racing operated and greyhound racing is a sport but also an industry as I suppose we understand sport to be like that now but in a particular greyhound industry was understood to be a potential export industry and by the 1950s there were 5,000 greyhounds a year being exported from from Ireland actually there's the first record of greyhounds being exported from from Ireland it shows you how little history changes to some extent is is back in the time of the Roman Empire when when Irish dogs were were exported to Rome as a kind of a, they were so well regarded apparently um, that uh, they were kind of prized possessions. But in terms of horses as well, the, the privilege which horse racing has enjoyed as an industry in this country is undeniable. And it's undeniable at a, at a whole load of different levels from uh, exchequer funding of, um, of, of, the, of the entire enterprise to, for example, the provision by different county councils of prize money for horse racing events in our support for various horse racing festivals during this year. So even in the midst of a downturn in 2013, the near York Town County Council has given 30 and then 40,000 euros to Leopardstown Racecourse. So this is, it shows you that that place of, of, of horse racing in, in, in Irish society. Okay, two last quick things I want to touch on then. Um, I'll come to blood sports in a moment and, and hunting, but I, I think it would be remiss of us uh, not to mention just general participation. Like when you, we, we, we touched there on where mm. physical education was and fast forward now, you know, uh, you know, even men of a certain vintage understand they have to exercise. I mean, there was the recent study about the exercise being undertaken in, in the midst of the pandemic. It was sky yeah. high. Everyone, everyone's out doing something. You know, I'm thinking of uh, Ron Burgundy talking about uh, jogging with a soft J. It's this <laughs> thing. Apparently, you just run. Uh, it would strike me that um, amongst the masses, we are a more active bunch. We are a healthier bunch, you know, smoking banned and all that kind of stuff only in 2004. Uh, anecdotally, I would put it to you, we're out there doing more. There's more people who own a pair of runners and some exercise gear and they're doing something. Is that true? There's certainly people buying more runners than uh, <laughs> did previously, and, and aspire to going to going out um, and running. And and if you look, that it's worked by Peter Smith in in the 
uh, in Sport Ireland, which has charted this over a period of, of years. It's, it's the Irish Sports Monitor and how, how, um, how Irish people engage with sport. And it's really, really interesting to, to look at this. And it does show the engagement of people. And in particular, the most recent survey in the middle of the pandemic showed an increase of about 8% on this time last year on people who were, uh, who were actually active. Mm. And this all changed in the middle of uh, the pandemic. And it changed, I would argue, because of time. People have actually had a small bit of time and a desire to get out of the house to do something. And I think those two things played off each other. And the question would be, is that sustainable? Will they stay at it? Number one. Number two, how many kids or coaches in voluntary sporting organizations are going to return after the summer or as sport begins to open up again? Will there be dropout rates? Will kids kind of go, do you know what? Uh, I actually didn't really enjoy that. I was being kind of pushed into it by my parents or by my peer group. I've had my break now and I'm not going back. Would parents say, do you know what? I actually don't need this routine of bringing somebody to, to, um, to a sporting venue. We've had much better fun going out for ourselves, going out ourselves and, and doing stuff. And those parents who are coaches are involved in teams as coaches. Are they going to commit again mm. to the treadmill? And anybody who is involved in it understands the treadmill that is the Tuesday, Thursday, or Wednesday, Friday, what it is, followed by a weekend full of matches yeah. in various sporting organizations. And it puts an enormous pressure on time. Now, what do you get out of it in return? You get out um, socialization, you get kids involved in sport, you get competition it provides a framework of competition and you get the joy of of playing sport and being part of something so that's that's a really potent and strong pull for a lot of people but i suspect mm. i suspect that there are people who are going to say use this almost as saying Do you know what i like i value the exercise but i don't value the sporting commitment and we have this thing joe that yeah. that Sport is a force for good, is an inherent sports force for good. But that has to be challenged because it's not necessarily the case that sport is a force for good. Because our kids are involved in sporting organizations, because our kids are because we ourselves are involved in them, does not make it a good thing. It's what you get out of it and what, what, uh, what it does for you as well is also really important. Yeah, very interesting. And I, even as you were talking there, I, I, the point I put to you about how we're possibly a healthier bunch or a more active bunch, I mean, even as I said it, I, another voice in my head was saying, well, obesity levels are at an all-time high amongst kids as much as everything else, you know. But then again, maybe it's not mutually ex exclusive. People could be exercising more and also just lifestyle and, and eating habits are bad. So I don't know. Your dog, is, your dog is howling there, is he? He's, uh, yeah, once again, he's... Uh he's he's a beaut <laughs> <laughs> uh so so i don't know actually when when you're summing up the last uh 50 years as we arrive at 2020 uh are we a healthier bunch i mean from an obesity uh, point of view we're not well there's a really interesting thing happens or happening at the moment which is about which is about sport and it's changing the nature of sport and it involves esports and online gaming yeah. and the growth in online gaming and I understand the, the attraction for people and I understand why kids want to do it and I understand why adults get drawn to it. It's not something that is ever but crap at it and I have no interest in it. But in, in, in all of this, 
I, I the, there was a there was a gaming kind of world championship or significant competition played last year, and the prize money for it was more than it was for the FIFA Soccer World Women's World Cup. So the this is another world that exists beside the other world of change, and it's a reminder that society is never just one thing or the other at any given time. And people's diet, for all that there is much greater education around people's diet, there is also more disposable income. Um, for in a lot of places, which facilitates people eating and drinking the type of things that are not conducive to good health uh, yeah. or, to, or to, to shedding weight. And those two things are in conflict. There is tension between them. And on an individual basis, we face that conflict in the choices right. we make. Things and, and I mean, don't ever, go through my, is, don't, ever, don't ever go through my bins. I mean, it's a shameful litany of you, choices. Well, you've clearly been quite kind to yourself during this these couple of weeks Joe. <laughs> um, so right I, what I'm going to do here by the way is I know we were going to talk at the end about the future sports I'm, we're, I'm going to park that for a few weeks because I think I'm going to give you time to think about it we'll come back and do that again uh, and the clock's against us here just to mention before we go blood sports though so where are we because I mean this has come up throughout our 10 lectures this is in the fabric of the country people love blood sports so at the moment uh, it's obviously you know the, the left, lefty liberals, as they'll be um, accused of being, this is a shameful thing to be doing. This has to stop. Where are we in terms of officially what can happen? Okay, so when it comes to when it comes to hunting and to all manner of blood sports, it must be acknowledged that there are a group of people who will not, at, at any ex, um, account, consider it sport. They believe it is not sport. They believe it is barbaric, yeah. and um, they just, they, they just cannot acknowledge that. I prefer to look at it in the context of the reality of the world as it has been and continues to be rather than how people may wish it to be. So I look at it in the context that this is an activity that people used to call sport and it still fits for some people within that thing. And I, I think it must be understood um, as, as an activity that humans engage in in an organized fashion that has clubs and we can argue about whether it's appropriate or not, but it is still fits within the frame that I wish to talk about when it comes to sport. So in an Irish sporting context, we saw that cockfighting and dogfighting and bull baiting had been outlawed before the 1840s. It remains the case that cockfighting continues in Ireland, and we are now currently in the middle of prime cockfighting season. Now, whether it has been possible to stage cockfighting in the last couple of weeks. Cockfighting is normally the high point of the season is, is Easter to July or more or less. And whether it has been possible because of the pandemic and everything that goes around that to stage cockfights, I don't, I don't know, but it, there were certainly some in Ireland last year. Uh, there is dogfighting. We know this on a regular basis in, in the country, and that's real. Um, on top of that, badger baiting. The last account of badger baiting I can find, although it may continue subsequent to this, is uh, in Kildare in the 1950s when um, a Sunday newspaper here uh, found, um, they, they just did this investigation, undercover investigation, and found this uh, badger baiting taking place uh, one evening in, in, in Kildare and have brilliant photographs of it. And in the crowd were local men, as you would expect, but also women and children who were, who were at... Uh, 
at this event. Now, I don't know if it still continues. I'd be really interested to hear from people if they if they think that it still uh, it still continues. So then we go to more mainstream sports. So coursing is not banned. Coursing coursing continues to draw huge numbers around the country. It's been modified in terms of the management of the hares and the management of the dogs, but it is a sport which uh, is still in existence, still draws a lot of people to it and is still uh, very well regarded in, in, in certain communities. Stag hunting was banned in, in 2010, but fox hunting um, continues. And this, is, this, this has happened despite more than 50 years of lobbying from the Irish Council against blood sports. And it should be said that there is not the same division in Ireland over hunting and everything to do with it as there was in, in England. The, the nature of British society, it's deep urbanization, even in comparison to here, um, it meant that there was a real heavy clamor for the banning of, of, of hunting in, in, in England. And I think, I think that same clamor, there was some of it here, but not to the same extent. Okay. On that note, Let's uh, put a pause in this series, and that brings us up to 2020. I see what you mean, how it's, it's hard to even scratch the surface of these uh, 50 years that are, that are fresher in the memories, but that was a very decent effort to do so. Uh, Paul Rouse, professor at UCD School of History. Uh, thanks so much for even the last 10 weeks. So that is kind of the overview of medieval times through to a modern day sport. It got a brilliant reaction. All the podcasts are there if you look up in the highlight section on our podcasts, or equally, if you download our new app, you'll be able to get all 10 episodes there. So I think um, you've got corrections and different bits and bobs on at the moment. We're going to put a pause on things for a while, but we, we, we might do a deeper dive into one or two subjects which we had to brush by throughout the series. Is that the plan? I think, uh, yeah, at some point in, in, in the future, we might look at things like Ireland and the Olympics, or we might look at road bowling or their various different sports, and which didn't really get uh, a mention here. And... I think it would be really interesting to look at some point on what we might consider to be the, the future of sport. But, yes. but in terms of how this course was taught in, in UCD over the last, well, the guts of 20 years, the broad frame runs across those 11 weeks from the medieval period until whatever day uh, the final lecture on the course in any given year is, is taught. So we might throw in some, some add-ons around it. And of course, the course would normally have seminars attached to any lecture that was going on so it's not exactly the same thing sure but no, it is it's a it's it's a reasonable taste of it well if anyone wants to write essays or critiques of the course just address them to paul rouse at ucd and he's promised he'll mark them and return them to <laughs> <laughs> well Joe, it is actually interesting i spoke to your colleagues in uh, in the production team and uh, the, you will be receiving an, an online paper um <laughs> after uh, after the news and i i it probably won't be the greatest radio of all time, but you know, I look forward to, to seeing yeah. how you get on with it. Well, I have to say, I, found it, I have found it brilliant. I really have. I did a history degree, but there was no sport component, so I really enjoyed it. So thanks so much, because I know it was a lot of work on your part to, to come on every week and do it and think about it and prep it. So no, my pleasure. My pleasure. Much appreciated. Paul Rouse of UCD. Thanks so much, Paul.